Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 20. In this episode, I talk with Jason Gallagher, who is principal of Harvard-Kent Elementary School in the Boston, Massachusetts Public School District. I have had the good fortune of working with Jason in a research education partnership for the past six years, and I wanted to talk to him about his leadership, which I've seen firsthand and I know is stellar. Jason's school has a high level of children in poverty, but it also has some of the best reading scores in the Boston Public School District. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. So speaking of these resources, I'm a bit behind, so bear with me. I'm working to get the resources up on the website and the transcript, so they should be there soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive rating in Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. Welcome to See Here Speak Podcast. Today I have Jason Gallagher, and he's principal at Harvard Kids School. I'll let him start by introducing himself. Hi, I'm Jason Gallagher, and I am the principal of the Harvard-Kent Elementary School here in Charlestown, Massachusetts. Thanks for having me on. Great. So tell me about the school dynamics and uh, you know, what you're most proud of in your tenure in principal, how long you've been principal, and what you're most proud of with the school. So this is my ninth year of um, ninth year being principal at the Harvard-Kent School, and uh, one of the best things about our school is we are an incredibly diverse school. Um, you know, we have, um, you know, students from every possible subgroup that you can think of, and none of our groups are more than 30% of the, of the school. Our largest population would be our Latino students, uh, is about 29% of our school. Um, Black and Asian students are about 23, 24% of our school, and white students are about 20% of our school. Um, so we have a great mix of kids, and um, about half our students are English learners, uh, they, their native language is something besides English. About a third of our students are students, uh, well, it should be under a third, about 30% of our students are students with learning disabilities or other uh, various disabilities. Um, and, um, you know, as far as social economic backgrounds, um, we do have a high number of kids who are considered high need. Uh, about 80% are economically disadvantaged. Um, we do have the highest percentage of kids living in public housing of any school in the Boston Public Schools. Um, so we have like a vast array of kids who come from a lot of different backgrounds, but you know, definitely a lot of kids with high, a high level of need, but they're a great group of kids and we love having them. And it's a, um, you know, our school is a very active, happy place to be. And I think that, um, we're really proud of making sure that kids feel like they're in a great school. Families feel like they're part of a great school. Teachers and students feel the same way. Um, so we're really proud that we've been able to build the type of a school where kids are happy, but also that they're doing uh, really well and making really solid growth on in their reading and their writing and in their math and on MCAS mm -hmm. and all the measures that we're asked to measure kids by. What do you say to educators, um, and you, I imagine you might encounter this, that will say, wow, that school has children who are struggling in many ways. You know, they are living in poverty and they you know, may have, have food insecurity mm -hmm. and home abuse situations and different things that come um, with, uh, you know, uh, in public housing. And mm -hmm. so what do you say to educators who maybe are even surprised at some of the good scores that you receive? Yeah. So those are all those facts you talk about, you know, coming from public housing and maybe living in a situation where, 
you know, families living paycheck to paycheck or having food insecurities. Um, those are all things that we have to recognize and realize that they're part of the puzzle of, of a student, um, but they don't tell their whole story. Um, and so, you know, we recognize the fact that it's important that our kids every day get to school on time to eat breakfast, that we serve them a good lunch, that there's opportunities for them to do different things around, um, you know, eating healthier foods. And, you know, oftentimes we have a lot of community partners who will, you know, donate things to the school so we can send families home with bags of vegetables, of fruits, or anything we can do that will, you know, support families with eating healthier foods. Those are all things that are important to us. Um, but really the number one thing we do is provide them with a safe and welcoming school where they can still learn so that they can eventually become college and career ready so that maybe their, you know, the trend for the rest of their lives is that they're able to go on to college and get great jobs and, and you know, move to a situation that's better than their current one. You know, I, I'm so lucky to get to work with you guys. Um, yeah, we love having you guys I, down there. I love being over there. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's such a, an honor yeah. to work with you and the, the kids there. It does strike me that the school is more like a community center. Mm -hmm. How did you intentionally set it up that way with all these partners in the community center? What has that done for the school? Well, we've been real lucky being here in Charlestown. A lot of folks from the community have been really good to us. You know, the MGH, IHP, one of those places, um, you know, the Boys and Girls Club, um, RSM is a company here in town, um, the YMCA. You know, we, we can name all the groups here in Charlestown. They're very good to us and they recognize the needs that our families have. So when a community partner comes up and says they want to do something to help our kids, I always start with yes, and then we figure something out. And our, our kind of strict line on that is if it's going to help our kids and our families, then we'll do whatever it takes, right? Um, you know, we can take care of the reading, writing, and the math, but a lot of the other things that we do, whether it's, you know, hats and coats over the winter, um, you know, T-shirts during the summer, school uniforms, um, you know, buying computers for the school, you know, we, our community partners are great to us and they help us make sure we're, we're meeting the needs of our kids, um, where, especially the things that might cost families a lot of money. But yeah, we do, we try to make the school feel like a community. Um, and, you know, a lot of the community partners use our gyms, like, you know, the basketball programs in Charlestown, the soccer program, um, the cheerleading and football, they all use our gym, which is great. Like we want to be a part of the community and we want the school to see us as part of the community and they do. But then our kids also take part in those events. So it's like, you know, we want to be like a center of the community for our kids and our families. And I think, I think we're, we're, we're close to being that. Yeah. That seems like that just is so great how it can, it creates this sense of safety Yeah. because it's not just for the kids, it's right. also for the adults too, yeah. that yeah. can be, you know, and feel comfortable going in. Right. It seems like um, in the schools I've worked in and especially working with families who have maybe negative school experiences mm -hmm. themselves, like yeah. the parents might have negative school experiences. Right. Yeah. They don't want to go to the school no. and they don't no. feel welcome, but right. that's different at your school. No, we, you know, we try to be a safe and welcoming school for all of our kids and families. And we, we believe that our families feel comfortable coming up to talk to us at any time, if there's anything going on, or even just to stop by or to talk to a teacher or to be a part of our events or a part of our parent association. Um, you know, we really do believe that we need the kids and families to feel like they're in a great and a safe school in order for them to be successful. And, um, you know, having that, having all those things in place are paramount to kids being able to learn how to read and write and do math and all those things that they have to do. So if a kid feels safe, you know, you, you, you're, you've taken the biggest step you need to take in order for the kids to be successful. Do you, um, when you think about uh, the community aspect, yeah. how, how transient are the kids that you have? Like is Harvard Kent a pretty, 
stable group of kids or do you have them come in and out? Um, we have a, we have a, a fairly stable group. Um, we're at the point now where uh, we actually have waiting lists in a lot of our, most of our grade levels, which is a good thing because it means more families want to come to our school. Um, we do lose a couple kids every year. Um, not as many as we had in the past. In the past, we would have kids transfer out to like an advanced work class if they were eligible. And, and that's not really a big factor anymore. Um, but oftentimes we do have families who move out of the city of Boston. Obviously the price of housing is incredibly expensive in Boston. Um, you know, we don't have much of a middle class anymore. Um, so we do lose families who, if they're renters here in Charlestown, or even if they live in the housing development across the street and they're looking to move to somewhere else, it's really hard for them to buy something in the city of Boston. So they end up leaving the city. Um, and then we'll have, you know, if, if a family leaves and we always have a new student coming in. Um, so the transient population is not as large as it used to be, but we still do see some turnover. And then, um, you know, when new families come in, it's welcoming them. We don't know what their previous experiences were. Sometimes it's a great experience. Other times it's maybe the child hadn't had success at the previous school. So we want to let them know, hey, this is a chance for a fresh start. And here in our school, you're going to be happy. You're going to make friends. Um, and you're also going to learn and you're going to work hard. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to be proud of yourself. So, um, but it's, it's, it's a conversation that we have relatively frequently. Um, we do get disappointed when a student leaves because, yeah. uh, you know, we've worked together for a while and we want to see them su have success. But um, we know it's sometimes it's part of the life of being a school in the city. Yeah. You know, what are, what's the structure like? I think for the listeners who don't know about the Boston system, mm -hmm. what's that? What's that, you know, infrastructure like central office versus individual schools? Right. So um, there are approximately 125 Boston public schools. Um, we have a, a superintendent of school committee who kind of oversee our all of the schools. And then, you know, within the central office, there are like elementary superintendents, then there are uh, different departments who help us and support us with our work, whether it's like human capital, budget, um, academics, um, you know, they're all operations and they help us with their, they have their, like their silos that they work on to support the schools. So, you know, it's all that work is done at, uh, centrally and then they support the work we do in the schools. It seems to me from the outside that it almost feels like the way Boston Public Schools is set up, it's almost like they're the federal government, the administration, right. and they give you your budget. But you right. can spend your budget kind of how you have some flexibility there. Is that true? Well, um, it's interesting. The budget we are getting, we are given a, ba a base budget and then you're giving funding. You're given your school is given funding based on the number of students that you have. They have a weighted student formula. Um, but then with that funding, you have to make sure that you have the number of teachers you need to have. You know, there are class sizes that we need to follow. Uh, you know, a certain amount of specialists we need to have, substitutes, things like that. So we were able to use our money um, to set that up. And then what additional funds that you have in your money that's left, um, you have some discretion on. Um, we usually don't have a ton of discretionary funding, which is why like our community partners are so important to us. But we, we do have in discretionary funding, we really do put into um, into teaching staff, um, which again, isn't a lot of discretionary funding, but uh, you know, our personal thoughts are we want to hire people who are hands on with our kids and actually teaching, um, whether it's additional ESL teachers or teacher specialists who can do additional reading supports or math supports. Um, you know, our, our school would rather do that than, you know, there are other schools that make choices to do things like have, you know, directors of instruction or math coaches. Um, 
you know, our thought is we'd rather have teachers who are in the classroom and working directly with kids. And that, right. that's just kind of what works for us. Mm -hmm. yeah. And thinking about, I, I really appreciate how open you are to the partners. And mm -hmm. I like how you you start with yes, mm -hmm. and then you shape it. To yeah, we figure need, it out. Right? Yeah. As long as it's right. good for the kids, we yeah. want to do it. And I know sometimes the teachers get a little bit like, oh, what's this one go. now? But, <laughs> but they know that we bring something in. If it's not good for the kids, we wouldn't do it, right? right. And right. it gives them lots of opportunities yeah. to do things that... Otherwise, they would never be able to do. Right. And sometimes it's a crazy, unique idea, and you hear it, you're like, oh, we can figure this out, right? Yeah. And uh, then the kids end up loving it. It makes a difference in them coming to school every day and being happy in school and doing something different. Um, but it also matters because they want to be stronger in their reading and in their writing and their math because they want to be a part of all the great things that, that are available for them. So, yeah. And how do you... If you are describing to your, um, you know, your, your parents and your uh, um, educators and even just your community at VPS, what do you say about our partnership at IHP? How has that been beneficial to the kids? Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting. That's a good question because when people ask about it, the first thing I say is, I don't know, but if you walk around the school with me, I guarantee you're going to see someone from IHP somewhere here in our building doing something. And, you know, luckily we have, you know, a coordinator who helps us to coordinate a lot of the work, but... You know, everything from supporting us with data, uh, helping us read our data so that we're providing the right interventions to, to students, to providing our teachers with professional development so they understand the kids who are in front of them um, and, and, you know, how they're learning language. Um, they, there are folks might be who do things with our nurse and we're looking at kids, you know, doing like their heights and their weights and their vision screenings. And they're working with kids at recess. So they're down in the gym and they're doing fitness camps with kids or they're painting birdhouses. I mean, there are so many things that the that all the the students from the IHP are doing that it's like it's pretty amazing like the breadth of stuff that goes on and um, and the kids really benefit from luck because they're doing things that again otherwise they wouldn't be able to do and the teachers like it too because again it's it's different things that they might not have expertise in but they know our kids benefit from so there's just so many things going on and it's it's been great for our kids. You know, it was interesting. I never thought about this as a byproduct, but I was talking to a nursing student yeah. who said that one of the Harvard Kent students said, "Oh, what are you? What are you doing?" And he mm -hmm. said, "Oh, I'm. I'm and it yeah. was a male, so I'm, you know, becoming a nurse, and this is what I would do." And he was a Latino male, and the student said, "Maybe I could do that someday." And the student said, "Of course yeah. you can." So it Absolutely. almost is like this byproduct too. Yeah. Of, of exposing them to different career yeah. opportunities. No, oh no, absolutely. And we and we have uh, you know exposing kids to career is actually really important for us down at the school. It's actually a focus in fourth grade. One of our teachers, Ms. McDonough, does a careers in the community group, and I know they've worked with some folks from from the MGHIHP um, in the past. But when kids get to meet adults or someone older than them than them who are doing something different, they want to know what's going on. It's like wait a minute you're a nurse? Oh, what do I have to do to be a nurse? Like, that sounds like something that I would like to do. I'm good at this. I'm good at that. Those conversations happen all the time down at school. And um, having the young adults around who can talk to the kids about that makes such a difference. Because, I mean, think about when you're younger, you know what your family does, you know, policemen, you know, firemen, you yeah. know, doctors, you know, you know that. But you don't know about about all the different careers that are out there unless someone talks to you about them. So exposing kids to all these things is Incredibly invaluable. That yeah. is great. And yeah. now you've been to nine years, mm -hmm. and you go to fifth grade. Right? We go to fifth grade, right. yes. Yeah. So do you, do you know where your students go after fifth grade, or give um, up? Well, the, the really exciting news for us is that. Uh, this current fifth grade class is going to be sticking with us and we're adding sixth grade oh, for next year. Oh, so yeah. next year our fifth grade is going nowhere, That's which is great. awesome. Yeah, so we're having six, we're going to have sixth grade for the 20, 
21 school year. Yeah, so we're excited for that. Yeah, we have. So do you hear from some of your old like what is it? Yeah. Old students now, but you know. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's like it's like the the best problem that we have is it's like on a daily basis we have the doorbell ringing with kids who went to the Harvard camp. They want to come visit. They want to tell us how they're doing and and like we're, we're like drawn between the line of letting them in to say hi to everyone or going down to talk to them to say this isn't the right time because like, oh, the teachers are teaching they want to see you too but you know now it's not the great time but i mean kids come back all the time and um they want to tell us how they're doing they want to you know they they might not realize that they're in their fifth grade they tell us that they miss us and um but yeah we do we do keep up with a lot of our kids and make sure that they're doing well and um and they stop by to let us know how they're doing and the good thing is they're pretty honest most of them are like oh i'm doing great i did i'm doing this and uh, everyone's probably say, well, I'm doing good at this, but not at this. So sometimes I feel like they're coming by to get a little bit of an encouragement or something like that. Yeah, oh, That's yeah. nice. So they continue to see it as a family unit. For them. Oh, absolutely. And a yeah. Community oh, yeah. Place for them. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of them have like younger brothers and sisters so they come by and pick up all the time. And yeah. so we see their faces a lot, too. Yeah. So you had you said you have a wait list. So. Tell me, how's the Boston school system set up? So is there, uh, you know, it's not a community school per se? Like, would they automatically get into the Harbor Camp if they are in the, in the housing? Um, no, housing? no. So families have to register for school. And when they register, they have a group of schools that they're eligible to apply for based on where they live. Okay. Yeah, so... Um, it's, it's based on where you live. And then there's like a certain amount of schools that... Are, will be on your list and then you rank order them and then there's a lot in the kindergarten there's a lottery process to get it to get seats and then in the other grades um, if there's a seats available you can go in if not then you go on the waiting list um, but there's no guarantees for anyone getting in and it, and it can be that can be a tricky yeah. challenge for families to to navigate particularly in the k1 and k2 grades um, you know, there is a thing called sibling preference so if you're sibling in a school you have a better chance of getting but there's still no guarantee um, and why does Boston do that? Well, because I think that um, some schools are more highly chosen than others. So, and there's a limited amount of seats. So they can only fit, you know, if you have 60 first grade seats, you can only fit 60 kids. So, you know, if you don't get in one of those 60, then, you, then you're placed somewhere else. So they want you to make like multiple choices mm -hmm. and hopefully you'll get one of your choices. You may stay on the wait list of your first choice while you're in school at another school. So, um, you know, it's a challenge that BPS has in a lot of neighborhoods, and I know that there's a lot of work going on right now to try to figure out, you know, how to make sure as many families are in their neighborhood schools as possible, and then also to expand the number of schools that um, that are higher performing as well. And I know that's the work that all schools and all school leaders are doing right now. So, you know, that's the vision of our new superintendent, and, um, you know, we, we're really, feeling really good about the future for Boston Public Schools. That's great. Yeah. I know you do a lot of um, uh, training of principals and you have someone shadowing you now. What do you give them as the most helpful advice or some advice you give them about going into schools that are more, uh, you know, inner city, yeah. kind of diverse, like right. what advice do you give them? Yeah, so we, we've, um, the last few years we've had a fellow from, from Lynch Leadership, which is a great program over at Boston College that they, um, that they do in connection with a lot of public charter and Catholic schools. And, um, you know, the first thing that we do when we have our fellows, you know, assigned to us in August is we just talk about kids. Like we, a lot of conversation about kids. It's getting to know kids. Um, you know, oftentimes our fellows come in and they, they understand the curriculum. They've been teachers before. They know good instruction. Um, operationally, you know, there's some things that need to learn. So our thought is, you know, and this is so my assistant principal also 
you know, helps out with this a lot is let's get to know our kids and our families, you know, take the time over the first couple of weeks to get to know a bunch of kids' names, learn their strengths so that when things start, you know, maybe having kids start having a little bit of trouble with things, you know, their strengths and how to use those strengths to help them come back. Right. Um, and generally our fellows do a really good job of that. It's like within a couple of weeks, they have weeks, they have a relationships with tons of kids. They've gotten to know a lot of the classrooms, which makes it a lot easier when you're going into classrooms to observe instruction and see students learning. And when you know more about a kid than just their reading level, if you know that they play softball or that they're a cheerleader or they love art or they read books or this is the music that they like or they love to dance or, you know, their father does this or their mom does that. The more you know about a kid, the better it is for that student and the more likely they are to be successful because, you know, when you see them, you're talking about more than just school. You're talking about other things and the kids really like that, you know, yeah. and we love it too. Like yeah. It's good to be able to know our kids well. Yeah, I yeah. think that personal relationship and seeing them as a whole child as opposed to a data point yeah. makes it so critical. Yeah. And you're oh, really, absolutely. You're really yeah. teaching that, I yeah. think, to your fellows. I yeah. saw that right away, Yeah. Um, for sure. Mm -hmm. Now, let's speak a little shift to topic, but thinking about, uh, you know, these the science of reading yeah. and how to yeah. keep up on all the trends. And now it's been yeah. nine years. I know, obviously, before that, you were in education, so you've yeah. been there a long right. time. How do you balance making sure the kids are getting the best instruction but also just what's happening in the world? You know, it's a good question. And um, I think that you have to have teachers who you know um, how to have that balance in their classrooms. And we have, um, you know, in my opinion, we have the best group of teachers in the Boston Public Schools. Probably anywhere we have the best group of teachers. And, you know, with everything that's going on in the world, it's important for our school to be a safe place where kids can learn. And teachers know that, like, if there are things that we have to address, we'll address it. But that doesn't take the place of learning, right? The most important thing that we do is we teach the kids how to read and write and do math and make friends and all those things. But if we leave any of those parts out of the puzzle, then we're not doing right by our kids. Um, so, you know, teachers really know, like, this is something that's going on that we have to address. Well, let's, here's how we'll plan to address it. And then we're going to move on and continue on with our work because this is what we have to do. Like this is what this is what the parents are expecting for us, and this is what the kids need from us, right? Well, I have to say, working with your teachers, I think they are the best group too. They're, they're so, amazing. They're yeah. amazing. They're open-minded yeah. yeah. and they're thoughtful, right. critical in a great yeah. way. They're yeah. always thinking about the kids first. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. And it it really shows. It's it's really so helpful, yeah. and I can see why. And they, and they trust know. each other. Like, yeah. they're really close on their teams. Like, they trust each other, and um, they they plan together. They know their kids, like, together. They share a lot of the, the work together. Um, and then, um, you know, they're almost like a family. It's like they're so tight together. And, um, yes, and you know, they, they do a lot. They do a lot. to get, yeah, yeah, I didn't have to hire a single new teacher this year. It was great. Wow. Um, it really is. I but next year we will be hiring because we're adding sixth grade, oh, so we have to hire teachers. Uh, yeah, and that would, that's really nice that they want to stay. And, and it's because of how they work together. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. They've set it up so that they are, um, they, they have to work hard. Like our teachers work so hard. Like they really do. They know that from the second we start school to the second we end, they, they have to be 100% on the whole time. And they know that. So that when the end of the day comes and that last student has walked home and that bus is gone, they can take that sign mm -hmm. and you can look at them and be like, well, you guys had a great week. They're like, you're exhausted. It's like, it's because they work so hard and they really do. They, they, they make me look good. There's no well, doubt about that. They, they do. Are, they, they are well-respected by you. And I think that makes a huge difference because you create that environment where their voices are heard. 
you know, and, and I think that's, that's so critical. It's, I definitely have seen more two way communication, right? Because it's not like you, this is an outside view, but I don't think you tell them what to do. You talk with them. Yeah. And that's really so nice. And yeah, most of the time, yeah, most of the time they're a lot, they're, they're stronger at instruction. They know what's right for their kids. They know that a lot more than I do. I I just want to like try to clear a path. So there's nothing in the way Mm -hmm. of them doing their jobs well. And if they need help with something, just to let us know so that we can support them with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes it's like we'll go to like a common planning time and I'll start the meeting. And then 40 minutes later, I haven't said another word and they have everything all planned and done. Or mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, thanks, guys. Thanks for making me look good. That's right. <laughs> well, Jason, what's your background? Are you special education background? Yeah, yeah. I actually, um, I actually taught at New England Center for Children, uh, uh, working with students with autism. Uh, while getting my master's at Simmons. Um, so my original, my teaching experience, I started as a special education teacher. I was a special education teacher in the Boston public schools. Then I was a general education teacher. Mm-hmm. Then I went to the special education office of Boston for a few years um, before coming back to the Harvard Kent as a, because I taught at the Harvard Kent um, as a principal nine years ago. Yeah. And you're of the community too. Oh, I am a, yeah, I live here in Charlestown. I'm a oh. townie. Oh wow, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I think that also yeah. adds have the best commute. No right, doubt about it. Totally. Right around the corner. I walked here. <laughs> yeah, it's like all the partnerships yeah. too, because you yeah. live there, so you can yeah. see. You know, yeah. you're not just leaving. You actually are there. You can see the partnerships and, and that matter. I think that's been really helpful with a lot of our Charlestown um, like partners because, you know, we've always been a school here in the community, right? And it's always been a good school. Well, I think what happened when I became principal is there were people who otherwise had no connection and saying, "Hey, I know the principal down there. I'll give them a call, see if they want to do this. They want to do this." And and if it's a friend of mine, I'm like, sure, let's do that. Like, yeah, absolutely, let's do that. So people in the community have just been, like, Charlestown's just been really good to our school. And, um, you know, and I think, I don't think it's a coincidence that our school keeps getting stronger. Um, and I think the community is a huge part of that. And how do you think your background as a special educator uh, helps you as a principal? Well, I think what I was taught, like, from the beginning is that teaching's really hard and that your stu- you have to know your students to do well. And one of the things about students with disabilities is every single student is different. They might be uh, identified as having the same disability, but it doesn't mean that their needs are the same. So we always looked at it, I've always looked at it as, as like, we can never look at kids in like whole groups. It's like, let's look at kids individually, which when you have a bigger school is hard to do, but it's really what our teachers and it's really what our teachers and our staff do. Yes, we might group kids by like needs to provide interventions, but we really know like the individual needs of those kids as well. And I think the background in special education tells, you know, was helpful in, in helping me determine that. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like when I work with special educators, they all have that background of diagnostics. And what I mean by diagnostics is the individual differences of kids, yeah, right? Just right, what you're saying. Because yeah, yeah. Like, you have a sense, like you sit down individually with each kid. Right. And you really start to look at right. it. Right, yeah. And I always think like in research, we have this concept of, clumpers and splitters so ah. if you're a clumper you kind of clump everyone together yeah. and look for patterns right. splitters kind of split out the individual differences and of course yeah. you have to do both like yeah you, said. you do right but special educators tend to have that splitter oh, yeah. part which i think right. is so valuable yeah. mm-hmm. you know yeah. for thinking about individual kids yeah and that's what our that's what our teachers do it's what our staff do it's it's um it's getting to know the individual kids and what their needs are like we might say oh these kids all have uh mm-hmm. you know a language-based learning disability, okay, but more specifically, this student here struggles with this, and this student here has a strength with this, and this student has a strength with that, so, 
you know, and then you can address their individual needs, which is hard, but yeah, very. But yes. you know, it's also helpful to know what they what their needs are. Yeah, and uh, another shift a bit. I just want to I want to get your advice for. I work with a lot of researchers who want to work with schools mm -hmm. and they feel nervous. Like, how do I approach schools? Yeah. You know, how do I do this? What has been your um, view in terms of what are the, the key ingredients to having a good research partnership yeah. with, with the school from your yeah. view? Um, so if we're talking to researchers, the first thing is you have to think of how there's value in this for the students and for the school. If there's value in it for the students of the, in, or for the school or in for the school, um, then schools are more likely to want to partner with folks to do research. If it's just research to write a paper and it's not thinking about what's good for the kids, then um, then schools would be less likely. They, they have to understand what the value is to them. And um, while teachers always love like, oh, I'll get a $25 gift card to Target if you do that's nice. But teachers would almost rather hear, you know, after we do this research, you're going to know each and every one of your students and where they are as far as like, comprehension on grade level text or anything along those lines. It just has to be specific, like what what are the students going to get out of this and how is it going to help the students rather than just, oh, you'll have some data and that's it. Right. You know what I mean? It does seem like, too, um, like the listening phase of like going in mm -hmm. and, and not just saying, okay, here's research we're going to do, yeah. but saying, here's what we offer. Yeah. Yeah. Is something of this of interest to you? Yeah. Like maybe with that listening? No, thing? absolutely. It, like, instead of coming in with the idea 100% solid, it's like, here is something that we want to do. How could we partner to figure this out so that it will help your kids, but then we can also get some research and data that will help other schools as well? That, that It's kind of like it's it really becomes more of a partnership than yeah. we need to use you for research. And if it becomes a partnership, it's, it's a lot better. But yeah. if there's... And, and I can almost say that like most school leaders would say if it's helpful, if it doesn't take too much teacher's time up um, and it is valuable to the kids, then, you know, we're crazy not to try to figure something out. Right. You know? But it is interesting because I think, um, you know, because we, and I speak for myself too, we're yeah. not trained in how to do that. Yeah. We're almost trained the opposite, like yeah. go in, here's what we have to offer. It's so stringent. Yeah. yeah. And what I've learned over time is that you do have to be more flexible. Like you might have a, a research idea, but it has to be something that is still amenable mm -hmm. to what's going to help, you know, yeah. and it's, and I think some of it too is just even how you think about what you're doing, because mm -hmm. you might just think from, like you said, you might just as a researcher think about the paper, right? but really there's so much more than the paper. Yeah. Like you can get the paper too, but what yeah. on top of the paper, what are you doing to really be a partner? Yeah, I, I think that's you. I think the our summer program over the last few years is like a prime example of that. It's like, we know we're running a summer program for kids so that we can push literacy over the summer so kids don't, you know, they don't have the summer slide, summer slide yeah. and maybe even make progress over the summer. We know that there's not a lot of, as much research as we had hoped on that type of work. Well, we're going to do this. Someone needs to research this. Why can't we work together to figure this out? And that's been really, um, that's been really a good thing for us over the last few summers because we have the support of MGH and the IHP folks. Um, and our own teachers are working and doing a lot of instruction. We have some of the grad students in doing instruction and work with kids. And it's a really nice collaboration, and, but it's definitely a collaboration. I thought Joanna yeah. <laughs> called yesterday, don't forget the, the, the early proposals are due November 1st. And I'm like, I already have it on the calendar. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, it's that, that communication yeah, yeah. part. But I do think that I've appreciated that the Institute also is willing to put some skin in the game. Oh, yeah. By, like you mentioned that, you know, they're, paying the salary of someone who's the, yeah. the oh absolutely you know, um, yeah what, what, 
it's not ambassador, but you know, is the like um, she's she's liaison. like she's the liaison yeah. between the school. Yeah, yeah, Diane. Yeah, which makes a huge difference. And and I do want to, speaking of Diane. So she Diane is an SLP yep. and also has training in literacy. Mm -hmm. What do you see as a principal is a way that SLPs can really show their value for literacy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you, you know, what's your well, experience there? You know, so Diane was our speech and language pathologist for years down at the school. Um, she's retired from that, but mm -hmm. obviously still working with us. And she really is almost like, um, she's almost like a groundbreaker in understanding that there is like a strong correlation between reading and language. And oftentimes SLPs are, um, are stuck in a spot where they have so much testing they have to do and compliance base uh supportive kids like things you know he has 30 minutes in his iep every day i have to do that which are all really important things it's not that they're not but it's also great if slps can see the connection between that and reading and um you know in all honesty it's not something that everyone sees right um it's actually almost i don't want to say it's unique but the mghihp slps are more grounded in reading than slps from just about anywhere else right you know they you really know? are because all of the slps here their first year have to see a child who has a written language difficulty right regardless so oh, I mean, I that's that. a, that's yeah crazy. that it's yeah. really unique yeah. that way mm -hmm. and they see a child who has more of the spoken language too yeah. more of the speech sound or early yeah. but i think it forces them to see that connection yep. even if they want to go into medical field at right. some point they have right. to see that connection yep. that is very unusual and i think my experience has been some speech pathologists feel, like you said, overwhelmed. Yeah, it's a lot of work. You know, and yeah. it's like, oh, I have to do my caseload right. and try to do right. this. But right. it, it seems to me that Diane, because she saw that, um, she was able to then build a relationship with you and the mm -hmm. teachers that, that showed her value. To yeah, because, I mean, there are times that SLPs really working one-on-one -on -one with a student with some sort of, whether it's a speech yeah. delay or whatever, it's very valuable. There are other times that that service being provided in a group while reading instruction is going on can be supportive, can be like even more supportive of what the child needs. So, um, you know, it's a broad statement to say like, oh, they should all be doing reading work. It's, you know, find the opportunities to get connected with the school and to be a part of the literacy work that everyone's doing. And, and I think that SLPs who do that find themselves as like a really engaged, valuable part of the school rather than just delivering skills in isolation, right? And right. um right. And while again, some of those skills in isolation have to be done for certain reasons, like specific student needs, I get that. But being a part like of the whole community and, you know, bringing some of those supports into the classroom can be, you know, really valuable as kids are learning how to read too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, because it is those kids on the yeah. caseload. They're the yeah. ones. Yeah. So it's like you have yeah. the overlap. There. Oh yeah. It's yeah. So it's incredible. a lot of the same kids. Well, I'm going to be mindful of our time. I yep. really appreciate This has been such a great conversation, but I do yeah, always ask my questions. guests two yeah. questions. At okay. The end. So one is, what are you up to now that you're most excited about? Well, we're really excited about adding grade six next year. Yeah. So we've been doing a lot of planning with that. We have a great group of teachers who are, we meet every other week to do some planning around that. So that's very exciting. Um, we're also excited that um, on Halloween, the 31st, uh, is the school on the move breakfast. So we're up for a big award on the 31st with Edvestors. So we're finalists for that. Um, oh, only, with a couple, yeah, no, it's exciting. It's, um, you know, you're nominated based on like improvement data over the last few years. And, um, 
you know, we were one of the three finalists with a couple of really nice Boston public schools, the Kenny and the Bradley, two great schools. So we're excited for the breakfast next week to find out if we're the winner of the school to move. Oh, and, and what uh, does that mean if you win? Uh, it means money. No, money? We, <laughs> no. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> yeah, me, I, we would win $100,000, which is great. Um, yeah, Investor supports it, and, and they've, been, they've been a great organization to work with. Uh, so we're excited about that. And, um, but it's also one of those things that like the teachers, we're all very excited. But do we want to win? Of course we want to win, but just being nominated where we are right now, is like, it feels good. We're nominated with a couple of really good Boston public schools. And, um, so we're excited for that next week and then, um, you know, to see, you know, hopefully some really good news there. You know? That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's really Yeah. Great. It's kept really us busy cool. in the beginning of the year. So, yeah. you know, it's, uh, Oh yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear. About yeah. Oh yeah. We'll hear. Oh, for sure. The breakfast you said? So it's <laughs> yeah. They do a breakfast on Halloween oh, morning. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. That's yeah. Great. Over at the Intercontinental Hotel. Oh, yeah. well, congratulations yeah. again. It's exciting. Uh, yeah. The other question I ask is what's your favorite book from childhood or now? All right. So this is, this is a tough one. I was trying to think of like my favorite childhood book, but uh, because I got the email today, because I, I go to Barnes and Nobles all, I'm still a hard like oh, pick up too. the book and buy it type guy. And I just went, I just went this weekend to Barnes and Nobles and I used my card or whatever. And so I got the email today that my my favorite author, his name is Holland Coven, and he just writes like mysteries. Oh yeah. So like being in education, when I read at night, like before I go to bed, I have to read books that are like easy to read and like great, great storylines and good characters. So I like all the Holland Coven books and he's got a new book coming out. So I have to like pre-order that because I read his books in like a week. Cause oh, they, I love those they're like, they're too. like the grippers, right? I they're ones them. that you they're can't mysteries. let go of, right? Yeah, the yeah, mysteries. Yeah. Um, and so I love reading those books and then I always alternate in and, and there's always one sitting next to my bed, next to my, my alarm. Um, you know, uh, something that has to do with work in school. Right. Whether it's, you know, something to do with education or something to do with school. So the book that I have right now is actually a group that a book that I'm reading with a group of principals called The Multiplier Effect. And it's about having multipliers in your school who help make the school stronger versus diminishers who could like kind of take the energy away. So it's an interesting book that I'm reading with a group of other principals. Um, those ones are a little bit harder to read. Sometimes you read like half a chapter and your brain's drained or something like that. <laughs> totally. But it's a, but it's a really good book. So I kind of alternate back and forth between those two. You know, but the fast ones that I know I really like yeah. that, you know, um, that's really yeah, cool. Yeah. That's and, great. Yeah. But that's kind of like what we try to teach the kids yeah. at school, too. It's like, what do we want them to read? The answer is we want them to read like at grade level so that they understand what they're reading, but to choose books that they like, because we choose books that we like. And that's what kids should be doing. And that's as the well. joy of reading, yeah, right? right? That keeps them going. Yeah. And that's not always the case. I know there are mandatory books that we have yeah. to read, especially in high schools. Yeah. There's a lot of mandatory. And I get that. But giving kids more choice of what they're reading mm -hmm. it helps kids become better readers because I, I know so. if i pick up a book and i don't like it i stop reading it absolutely i do i stop reading yeah. it and we can't tell our kids to stop reading books they don't like we just have to give them the opportunities to read more books that they yes. like you know so oh, that's tricky yeah oh jason thank you so much for oh, thanks coming for having me here this is cool yeah. this is cool thank you yeah Check out www.seeherespeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.